all right. Welcome to Catholic Leadership for Civil Society, an intentional community of Catholic leaders. This is a space about Catholic leadership, but not for the parish or the diocese. This is Catholic leadership for the world. Stay with us and allow us to share with you a vision handed to us by the Second Vatican Council to help advance the mission of the church. It all boils down to one idea, engaging society as civic leaders. My name is Christopher Pereira. I'm your host. My co-host, Erin Monning, is also in the room. Hi, Erin. Hi, Christopher, and good morning, everyone. Before we start, if you could take some time now to ping five people, five Catholic professionals who you know and follow in Clubhouse, they will be invited to join our room, and then their friends will also be notified and attracted to the room as well. Thank you very much, Erin. And for those of you who are regular to this room and you come every week, thank you for joining us again. For those of you who are new to the conversation, we're very excited to have you. This is a space within Clubhouse that uh, focuses on the topic of Catholic leadership in civil society. That means having an orientation towards impacting the secular world as Catholic leaders, particularly those of us who are Catholic professionals who, who uh, find ourselves in a very privileged position, a strategic place from which we can help advance the mission of the church, seek to intentionally become influential leaders in society. Those of you who are new, I invite you to follow Erin uh, and I. And if you go into our bios, you will see a direct link to our Telegram group. And right on our Telegram group, every week you'll be able to see the image of the week. This week in particular, we're going to talk about the need for Catholic leadership. We touched on this topic uh, from several different angles and and um, and. Today, to this, this conversation is going to be about why there is a need for, the, uh, for Catholic leadership for civil society within the context of uh, what we could say is our sponsorship, our sponsoring organization, or, or sort of where, where it all started, which is the program that we are uh, connected to, which is called Tepeyac Leadership Initiative. And if you had an opportunity to see the images of the week, this week I shared, we shared two images. Those are images from our retreat, from Tepeyac Leadership Initiative Retreat, which is a retreat that brings together Catholic professionals, and we call it the Virtuous Leadership Retreat, to dwell on what it means to be a virtuous leader within that context of Catholic leadership in civil society. What does it mean to be a virtuous leader? Uh, I can tell you that uh, this is a highly impactful experience. The retreat is actually the, the highlight of the program. And what we do in the retreat is we really focus on how is it that God made us, each one of us individually, what was his blueprint for each one of us? We talk about the temperaments. Uh, and those of you who know the temperaments under, understand that that each person is born with a predominant and sometimes very often a secondary temperament from understanding how God made you, what your temperament is. You can know what your strengths and your weaknesses are. And from that, you can build and work on the virtues that you need to work on the hardest so that you can become a person of integrity. And, and in addition to that, a leader, a Catholic leader in civil society. So today we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about Catholic leadership in civil society, and we're going to do it within the context also of uh, contemporary uh, 
things that are happening today in society, what are the things that keep us preoccupied, particularly as Catholics? I can think of so many developments in the pro-life arena, for example, with uh, the Texas law that is now being contested and that uh, so many, so many pro-life states are looking up as a model to replicate and the different things that are happening at the Justice Department. We can talk about Pope Francis and what he has recently said about pro-choice politicians. Uh, there's also live action. I don't know if you're familiar with live action, but they recently had some of their pro-life ads removed from Google, which is unprecedented. And Lila Rose, the founder and director of uh, live action, has made some statements with regards to that. We recently heard, for example, that Harvard, Harvard University, uh, has uh, selected an atheist as their chaplain. If you can imagine that, this crazy uh, post-Christendom world in which we live in, Harvard University now selects a, a person who doesn't believe in God as their chaplain. And, and recently, Pope Benedict uh, uh, 16, who had been silent for some time, I, I haven't heard from him for a while, uh, spoke up on the legalization of same-sex marriage, which, of course, here in the United States is a very unfortunate, tragic reality. But around the world, this is still a fight for, uh, for Christians, um, the, the redefinition of marriage. And another last thing that I would mention that, that comes to mind uh, recently, uh, after really years of unfair, uh, simply lies, that had been uh, told in California and around the United States about the history of uh, St. Junipero Serra. Just recently, Archbishop Gomez of Los Angeles and Archbishop uh, Cordiglione of San Francisco have spoken out about it. And all of these things, everything that I just mentioned, just give us a very clear example of how the world is now, what the world looks like, and all of the problems that we have, all of the lies and ideologies that are being passed on as truth and, and accepted by most of society, and why it is so important today to have more faithful, committed Catholic leaders who are willing to step up and lead in civil society. But I don't want to monopolize the mic. I'm sure you have some thoughts to share as well, Erin, and then we can probably just uh, begin some discussion on some of these uh, news items that are taking place right now. But what are your thoughts to begin with, Erin? Yeah, um, great opening, Christopher. There's, I feel like there's so much that we could talk about and touch on today as, as per usual, but this is um, such a great conversation because, yeah, we're just, we're getting to the need like why why do we talk about catholic leadership for civil society and why is it so important and christopher did a great job of laying out some um uh headlines for us that have been happening recently that we can look to and rec recognize that this right here is why um catholic leadership true authentic catholic leadership in our society is so important um so yeah, I mean, this is something that we are trying to change. We're trying to change the culture in a way that the, the headlines that Christopher just read and then I'll mention in a minute aren't happening. <laughs> um, you know, our, our country and our world is, is 
is at this point where there are so many different ideologies and things happening and being passed around and talked about and being um, voted into law and things like that, that it's, it's, this is the time. If there was ever a time, it's, it's always the right time, but if there was ever a time for us to stand up and speak out, um, it is now. And that's why I love um, TLI's mission and the mission of our room that we have here every week. And I'm um, just so grateful for all of you for um, being here with us and, and always asking questions and joining the conversation and contributing because this is, this is where it's going to begin, is, is developing these communities of lay Catholic leaders who um, will stand up and speak up for the truth um, because the truth is being put into question, it's being disregarded, it's being um, thought of as a last resort in a lot of cases, and it's it's really sad. So it is, this is, this room and, and our mission with TLI and Catholic Leadership for Civil Society gives me a lot of hope because we know that there are plenty of people out there who agree with us that this leadership, this kind of Catholic leadership is needed and necessary and important. But we need more voices who will stand up and speak out. <laughs> so, um, yeah, very excited about this. So, yeah, of course, there are a lot of things going on in our country, in our world um, today. I won't uh, repeat what Christopher said, but a couple of other things. You know, we, we're also at this crossroads of, of things that are happening in our children's schools. And I don't have a kid who's school-aged, but for you parents who do, um, that is really scary. There's a lot of things that are being um, introduced and in, indoctrinated into these into the classrooms and into our schools. And that's a really important place for Catholics to be right now because we do need to remember that um, there are plenty of future generations coming after us and we need to stand up for them um, as well. So lots of things happening in the schools. Um, we can talk about that more. Um, Christopher touched on it. There's a lot of the, a lot of censorship happening online on, um, on from big, these big tech companies. They're censoring anyone who says anything that goes against their narrative. Um, obviously the, the example of, uh, Google removing live actions ads. Um, but there are countless examples of the censorship that have happened in the past year and a half to two years, um, which we all probably have at least three examples we can think of right off the bat. But that's another problem is anyone who stands up and speaks out for the truth risks um, getting their online presence essentially just shut down. Um, so that's a huge issue. Um, and then, of course, these so-called Catholic politicians who publicly defy Catholic church teaching um, in a lot of different ways. Obviously, the issue of life has been the, the main issue in the spotlight, which it, so it should be. Um, it's a very important issue, and we do need to make sure that we are sharing the truth about the dignity of all life. But unfortunately, there are many people in the spotlight who call themselves Catholic, um, who publicly defy the that life begins at conception and so on and so forth. So those are just another few things I wanted to touch on um, that we can, of course, talk about more in detail. But 
I don't think we have to convince you of the need. (laughs) There are so many examples um, of why what we talk about in this room each week is necessary and important and needs to continue being talked about and acted upon. Um, Of course, we have a lot, all of you in this room are are true Catholic leaders in our society um, because you share examples from your own lives every single week with us of how you're living this out. And it's so beautiful and I'm constantly inspired. Um, But that's one thing I wanted to mention is it's great that we talk about it here, but then what are we going to do to act on it outside of this room and outside of this community in this space? So those are just my initial thoughts. I'm really excited for this conversation and I will pass it back to you, Christopher. Thank you so much, Sharon. And I do agree. We're probably preaching to the choir, but what's good about reminding us of the urgency of these issues, of the times that that we're living on, is that it creates us, uh, it it propels us to act. And that's what we need. Um, Just a couple days ago, we had uh, our quarterly Catholics in the Public Square Forum, which is just a virtual uh, gathering of people who Catholic professionals uh, that are involved with our, organ- our organization who are interested, have manifested an interest in running for office, for whatever party. It really is nonpartisan, uh, though it's, it's obviously Catholic, and that's how everybody identifies, and those are the values that everybody in, in the group embraces. And this group is a group of people who want to run and people who have run or have the experience and are there to support the ones that are going to step up and, and fill those gaps in society. This is a great need. So I want to talk, for example, I want to go back to, to the Justice Department. And I'm going to read this, this short uh, uh, excerpt from, from this news uh, article from National Catholic Register. The U.S. Department of Justice asked a federal judge on Tuesday to issue a preliminary injunction against Texas law prohibiting most abortions after the detection of a fetal fetal heartbeat following a suit from the Department of Justice against the law last week. A preliminary injunction, if granted, would prevent the law from being enforced while the Department of Justice lawsuit plays out in court. Such an injunction, quote, is necessary to protect the constitutional rights of women in Texas and the sovereign interests of the United States in ensuring that its states respect the terms of the National Compact. Attorneys for the, uh, end quote, attorneys for the Justice Department said in their statement, in their uh, filing. So what does this mean? Who is the Justice Department acting on behalf of? None other than our Catholic president, Joe Biden, and I, and I hate to do this, there are so many people that are fans, unfortunately, uh, misinformed or just, just, I don't know, I don't know if, it's, if it is possible at this point to be unaware of the president's positions with regards to so many Catholic teachings, but uh, there are so many, so many Catholics, unfortunately, that, that still support President Biden, even though now our Catholic president and, and this is a yes, I am being very ironic. Our Catholic president is going against uh, one of the strongest pro-life laws that we have seen in the United States ever since uh, abortion was allowed to, to take place uh, through Roe versus Wade. So what is going on? How is it? How did we get to this point where we have 
a Catholic, a so-called Catholic president who is fighting a pro-life law. Now, let me tell you, ultimately, God's will will prevail. And if this is being allowed to take place, and there's a reason why why uh, Texas, which is a very, I love Texas, such rebellious state, it never puts up with anything that, Texas does not put up with anything that Texas considers to be wrong. And if this has been brought up, it's because this is going to start a fight that's going to go all the way, all the way. We know where it's going to end, and we hope that it will end at the Supreme Court, where a decision will ultimately be made on the viability of Roe versus Wade. But, you know, this is something where, this is a topic where I know many of you have much to share. So I want to invite anybody who would like to share some thoughts on this, uh, on what is going on, because we truly, we truly believe uh, that uh, there might be a, a, a turn in the winds and things can, can uh, hopefully will go on the favor of life. And um, I saw Paul's hand go up, but I haven't been able to bring him up to the stage. Erin, uh, maybe you can help me. There's something defective with my app. There you go, Paul. Please take it away. Yeah, I sent an article to the Telegram group that I think will provide some kind of a first principles answer to why we are where we are. Um, it, it's taken me, I think, maybe many years to get to this idea that maybe we need to start approaching, um, at least you know, when, when we're thinking about things deeply, um, the rectification of names. It, it comes from a Confucian philosophy about like if things go sideways, what's the first things that we ought to do? We ought to call things as they are. And one of those things that I think has been severely abused in the discourse, both on left and right, and in such a way that informs various wings of the two major parties in the United States, is the abuse of what is called the common good. So I shared an article there to at least help people reacquaint themselves with a Catholic vision of what the thing is that is called the common good. Um, and the common good uh, is, imagine it as the social component of uh, the yearning towards the individual virtuous life. So as you have people who are individually virtuous, um, the uh, expression of justice, which is what one thing is due to another, or what one person is due, you know, due from others or another's, leads to the idea that um, certain groups, communities, which are natural, for example, the family, and then ultimately the extended family, the community, um, leading up to what's called like the, the political community or the city in an ancient sense, um, has what are called common goods, which is to say that, that, they, that the common good of any one of these things is towards their, their happiness. Um, and, and a false understanding of the common good might uh, ignore what Catholics know to be the, the first and foremost rule of, of, uh, of life, which is our, our beatitude with God is primary. That doesn't mean that we should not consider material conditions. That shouldn't, means that we shouldn't consider social um, pressure or strains that might make um, various communities 
um, have difficulty attaining that, that highest good. But the consideration of what is called the common good has been, I think, one of those things that's severely abused, uh, has been severely abused, and um, we, we are where we are right now. <laughs> um, and I think that the example of, you know, a, a, a baptized Catholic um, who uses their, their, uh, their Catholic identity uh, as a cudgel against um, law that is rightly uh, morally wrong. And it's not just to, with all due respect, you know, Cardinal Gregory's assertion that it is a Catholic teaching. It is actually a teaching that has been refined within the Catholic Church because of our use of, um, of science, you know, that, that we have been more clear, or it's been more clear about what, when a human being's animation, you know, their, their, their capacity to like, you know, change, and therefore at what point were they a thing as a human being, has only been informed by, by science itself. Um, so yeah, it's a bizarre uh, circumstance where this is, you know, the, the idea that life begins at conception can actually be fairly well supported and buffered um, by by scientific discovery, a la embryology. Um, so yeah, that's what I had to offer. I think that the, the idea of the common good has been severely abused, um, and it has given rise to bad forms of calculation um, as far as like, you know, policy, politics, um, the, the human community. That's what Paul, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. The common, the common good, the term and the concept of the common good has been abused and stretched and manipulated in so many different ways. Uh, and yeah, I, I also agree with you that that science and reason has always been and continues to be on our side because because we're on the side of truth. That and that is that is why faith and science and faith and reason are always always go together in spite of what some might believe. And all of Catholic teachings, not just the teaching on on the, on the dignity of human life and the value of human life, but every Catholic teaching goes along with science and reason. And and this is no exception. What do you make with? Stay with me, Paul. I wanna. Uh, I wonder what you make of, uh, if or if you were aware of the Pope's recent comments. I, I they made me so happy because it's not that the Pope had never talked about this. He's so busy. He's traveling. He talks about so many different things. Uh, and but I was really waiting for him to interject this this conversation, this debate. It shouldn't really be a debate, but this this uh, it is actually a debate taking place in the United States uh, with regards to so-called Catholic politicians approaching communion. And I'm going to read what, what I have here from, uh, it's I think in every Catholic news outlet now, but from uh, Angelo's News Pop, says pro-choice politicians outside community of church, but urges pastoral response. Pope Francis on Wednesday said that communion is for those who are in the community and politicians who support abortion are outside of the community. However, he also said that in these cases, it's a pastoral matter that must be addressed by the individual's pastor. Um, and the Pope's remarks obviously came after the groups of English-speaking journalists traveling with him uh, on his flight back from Slovakia 
that pressed him specifically on the matter of communion for pro-choice politicians. He was also asked if he had ever publicly denied communion to a pro-choice politician. Uh, and, and the answer to that question is actually not uh, included in the, in the article. But the, popes, the Pope spoke and, and he said it. He said it. Politicians who's, who are pro-abortion are not in communion with the church. And, and, and the Eucharist is for those who are. And every single one of us here in this room, when we do anything that pushes us away from our Lord, uh, it, through the breaking of a commandment, we know very well that we need to make amends with God in order to go back and receive him again. But, but anyway, I, I really wanted to hear your take on this, uh, Paul. Yeah, um, so I think that the, we have to also honor what the Holy Father has said about the fact that um, bishops' conferences know what is the best way to uh, how to approach these issues. So whether or not the Holy Father um, scandalously or surprisingly or not surprisingly has never uh, denied someone communion, um, we can put that aside for now and let, not let that be a real distraction. Um, it, it, to me, it does seem a little bit like sad that the answer was no, though I suspect that maybe he too wasn't really in the business of finding um, you know, looking at whether anybody that did approach to him had certain views. He's, he's not an oracle. That's the first one. Um, the second thing that, uh, that I, is helpful to point out is if the, if the Holy Father says that generally, like he's trying to convince someone to realize that they are outside of communion, then the approach to um, what the Holy Father is generally his, his personal strategy, and various popes have had their personal strategies, you know, for ill or, or, or good, is that he wants people to be convinced of something. Um, I will be honest, there was a period in my time where I was living in a manner where a priest said to me that I should refrain from communion until such things are resolved. Um, I was, of course, sad, but I respected his opinion. And I still went to Mass a few times with the knowledge of this. And at least I was honest enough to know that this was a matter of, of, of discipline. Uh, he didn't, you know, tell me, don't. He simply said, you should not approach, you know. Um, so I took it seriously. And then maybe one time, I believe, I, I, I did not. I've since confessed my, my and, and rectified these things. Um, but ultimately... I would like to comment what my experience was like with regard to um, uh, the uh, the problem of coercion. Um, the term coercion is often seen by our society as a uh, as a negative. It implies the idea that we are forced, uh, and that forcing anyone is somehow a, a moral uh, a morally wrong thing to do. But when you think about what coercion really is, um, it is a, a the use of authority by, um, you know, a, the proper authority rather, the use of um, not even force, but the use of law or, or rule by proper authority for the good of someone that is underneath their spiritual or material care. The simplest way to look at it is uh, a parent putting on the 
the, the seatbelt of a child despite their protests. The point of putting on the seatbelt for a child, I have one who sometimes protests, you know, putting on the seatbelt, um, is for their good. You know, it's for the reduction of the mitigation of harm that may come upon them. Um, I think our society is going to have to, you know, try to understand what this this kind of rule, you know, against the exercise of, of one's will, because I really wanted at that time to, you know, have proximity to, to Christ. Um, ultimately, these things uh, are risky, but they do lead to the the necessity for a person to to come into contact with their innermost conscience, which is the primordial, you know, voice of God, as St. John Henry Newman would say. And, and that's been my experience. My experience is in a case where a rule was informed upon me, I had to take that into it and I had to deal with the primordial voice of God, my conscience. Um, that ultimately resulted in a, a in me making decisions that rectified my, rectified my life. Um, I don't think that that view that I just described is outside of what the Holy Father intends for people. You know, um, coinciding with the fact that, you know, he uh, when he was bishop in in Argentina, the bishops also put together a national policy for how they deal with um, politicians of this kind. So I hope that is the most comprehensive and nuanced answer that I can give. But ultimately, it deals with the question of coercion and in a you know post Christendom world. In perhaps now a world where liberalism is acting very illiberal, we might have to come to terms with this experiment and realize maybe coercion, rightly understood and proportionately uh, implemented, might be helpful. That's all I have to say. I apologize if that's a controversial thing to say, but um, but it is a, a matter of, of I think rectifying the uh, rectifying of names. So. I don't think so, not at all, Paul. There's so much that we can unpack from what you have said, and I, I was expecting such good answer. That's why I asked the question. Before ending, I want to make sure I clarify because I did look it up. So when answered if he had ever denied communion, I found it. The Pope uh, actually replied, uh, like Paul said, no, he had never denied communion, but he also clarified he had never known of anyone approaching him in a condition that would prevent him or her from receiving communion. He said that. So That's true. We, he did say that part, that I believe, that. which is why I need to specify that if people are saying this, and, and I've first seen it in a few articles already, mm -hmm. people are saying that he has never denied, but never are they adding the clause that the Holy Father... Exactly. But they're missing the... Point. They're missing the second part of the of the answer, right? Which, make, which would make it very interesting if we ever saw, I mean, I, I, I imagine it within the possibility of things that could take place, uh, President Biden attending a mass celebrated by Pope Francis and approaching Pope, the Pope for communion. I would like to see what takes place there. And I, 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 and I trust that, that the Pope will know what to do. But with, for what you have said about restraint, and, uh, you know, I, I completely agree, Paul. And, and I, I, I see it so much the way you see it, because very often when it is difficult for me to understand the church or to understand church teaching or to understand God, it's very helpful to try to think in terms of fatherhood or parenting. And when I think about the things that I do with my children, 
it, it is so helpful for me to understand why God allows or why the church asks for certain things or or acts in certain ways. And when when some things might seem as coercion, in reality, is is they're asking us for an obedient for an obedience that would really uh, protect us from having to be uh, servant to sin, right? So it's an obedience right. to a good so that we can, so we don't have, don't end up being obedient to an evil. And, and that, that's the, the way that I think it plays out. Um, yeah, I but think I, that's, that's the, under, that's a, that is what I would call the true understanding of coercion. Um, and, and I want to kind of bring the term forward because I think there's another thing we should consider, which is um, there's this idea that somehow uh, well, no, I think that would be, I, I just wanted to add that, that what you're describing is the true understanding of coercion. I think we should kind of bring back the term and be comfortable with it instead of trying to over explain it and reduce it. And the reason why is because the more we do that publicly, the more we try to understand what the term truly means, um, the more we are having these conversations on, on our terms, um, as opposed to trying to, you know, defend them on on terms that are contrary to to reality i would say um, but yeah I don't. absolutely and you know what this is i don't want to digress too much but i, I just want to make a quick point and then we'll move on uh, this is uh, also the case with words like tolerance and discrimination right uh, there's society uses these terms in this sort of absolutes as if they were always negative but it but that's not the case that's not the case. And a simple examination of the words and the terms and their meaning will help us know that it's perfectly okay to discriminate against sinful activities. It is okay to not tolerate sin, right? And 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 sinful lifestyle. It is it is okay to discriminate. If my if my daughter tells me that she wants to date a drug addict, I think I am on my right to not tolerate, to be intolerant to that uh, potential boyfriend for her and discriminate against him by trying to remove him from her life as much as possible. And and we can see uh, very simply how uh, those terms are not always uh, meant to be looked up in the negative, just like coercion. But all of this brings us back to the conversation today, today, which is the need for Catholic leadership in civil society. If there is such a confusion about what truth is. If there is such a manipulate, such manipulation of language and terminology, and the impose the imposition of ideology and lies as truth by society, this 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 dictatorship of lies and 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 truths in society, uh, is because Catholics have not been willing for too long to step up and take on the leadership roles lay Catholics, that God meant for us to have in civil society. This is our calling from the Second Vatican Council, and it's so uplifting to see the example of people like Lila Rose from Live Action who are fighting these things. And, and let me let me quickly read you uh, the, the news article on Live Action that says that Google's removal of pro-life ads is unprecedented. According to the pro-life group Live Action, the search engine Google canceled its advertisements for abortion pill reversal services. The ad is further evidence of Google's pro-abortion biases. A leading pro-life activist, uh, which is Lila Rose, uh, has stated 
She said, in a dramatic and unprecedented move, Google has sided squarely with, with extremist pro-abortion political ideology, banning the pro-life counterpoint and life-saving information from being promoted on their platform, is what a live-action founder Lila Rose said. But Lila Rose, who I actually met uh, this summer, uh, and I had met her before, not that she knows she would know who I am, but I have spoken to her a couple of times at large events when I have approached her. And, and she is doing so much to, to fight the life, to protect the unborn. Uh, this, this summer, they released a new series of videos, beautiful videos that tell the stories of, of uh, unborn, ch unborn children. And, and from, from the moment that they come into, con into uh, conception until, uh, until they continue to develop all the way until they're born, And, and, and these beautiful videos are telling that story. So there's so much that her organization, Lila Rose's organization, is doing. Now, when they were running these ads that uh, were about uh, abortion pill reversal services, they were doing this. They were fighting to defend the unborn, to, to, to defend uh, uh, life. And we see, again, the examples, like Erin said, of how... Uh, technology, uh, the, the big tech companies have hijacked. Well, I wonder if hijack is the right terminology because they are the creators and really uh, the owners of these platforms. But they're part, they, they're, I wonder if when their platforms become universally uh, consumed or used, do they not at that point reach a, a place where they no longer have uh, the, the right to just uh, unilaterally decide every single way in which the platforms can be, platforms can be used. I don't know. I don't know. That's a question that I don't know the answer for. I, I, I'm very curious to hear you, uh, Aaron or Paul, uh, um, take on it. But this is certainly what's happening. Aaron, why don't you go first? Uh -huh. Yeah, no problem. Um, Christopher, sorry, can you clarify? You're just talking about the companies and how what do you think, like their control. What do you think, Erin? When a huge tech company such as Facebook or YouTube, when they get so big that most of humanity are on their platforms, at that point, do they rightfully get to decide everything that happens in their platform? Or the fact that they became so widely use their platforms sort of uh, uh, forces them to give up some uh, rightful, uh, some of the rights as owners of the platforms because they, they sort of become, uh, I think, the, the uh, part of, of, yeah, part of, of, of a commonly owned uh, good. But, you know, I'm very hesitant to call them a good. Uh, there can be a lot of good accomplished to them. I don't know if I'm making sense, but yeah, that makes is sense. it okay for them to do that? Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on this. <laughs> um, I've, yeah, in the past couple of years, I've, I've tried to better utilize my online presence for a lot of different things, particularly um, sharing truth in, in, in all these different, on all these different um Uh, social media platforms. And yeah, that's a really good question, Christopher. Um, 
I think it's, there's a couple ways I want to go about answering it. So when we're talking about, yeah, the big names like YouTube, Google, Instagram, Facebook, all of these big platforms that like literally billions of people are, are on and using, um, every minute of every day, essentially. Um, I think it's, I don't, well, to answer, to put it bluntly, I don't think that they should have control of what is um, or is not said on their platforms, specifically when they are censoring a certain kind of narrative. Um, Obviously, probably when each of them got started, they didn't know that it was going, or they didn't know or maybe had no idea how it would play out when they were um, as big as they are today. So I'll give them that. But when when they're now being used just so widely and so broadly and there's so much information being shared and received and talked about and um, posted and all of these things on these um, companies' platforms, they they have to understand that this is what they set their site, website, platform, all of their services up for was this flow of information. And when we boil it down, that's what it is. All of this is just flows of information. Some of it is truthful. Some of it is not. Some of it plays into their narrative. Some of it does not. And I think since you did make the point, they are the creators of their own websites and their own platforms and their own services. So yes, of course they, they do have control in that sense. Like, yes, they are the creators of this. If you don't want to, if you don't like what they're doing or saying or how they're, um, uh, executing their, their own services and website, then you have the choice to not use their service and website. So I do understand that point of view, like for those people who are being censored or who are, you know, being shut down and, and kicked off or, or trying to use these websites for good. And it's just not going very well. Um, unfortunately I do think there is some sort of, well, they are the creators of their own space and you are technically a visitor in that space. But I do not agree on the, on, the, on the same, in the same vein, I do not agree that they have this just overall right to censor every single thing that is or is not, that is shared on their platform that is not in line with whatever they personally believe. I think that is a huge overstep of our rights um, our freedoms, and there's there's no way that that is something that should be tolerated. I think, and there are a lot of people that are stepping up or speaking up about this, which is good. But um, I don't think that they they also have to know that since their services are for the flow of information, that not everything shared is going to be what they agree with, and that's just something that they should understand and live with. And I think that the more that we have this free flow of information and free speech, which is our constitutional right, I think that that's going, 
that's going to play out so much better in the long run and already has to this day by having this free speech than if it were to just constantly be censored and shut down if there's a certain narrative that they're trying to block out. It's already proven to be problematic, um, but I know that was like a very long-winded answer, but I think um, it is twofold, And but I do think overall, I mean, if I were to summarize what I said, I think there is has been a major overstep in um, what these companies are doing. Um, it kind of reminds me of like, like middle schoolers fighting with each other like oh if I don't get my way I'm just gonna shut this person out of my life like I literally feel like we're in grade school right now in the, in our society <laughs> like if, if I don't like what you're saying you're just gonna be out of my life like are we really this petty like is this what we've come to like this is like children's kind of action so it's just very interesting also to see it played out on this kind of a stage so to speak um because I just feel like it's so immature in a sense as well so anyways I'm sorry I've talked very long go ahead Paul (laughs) yeah um I think that uh I'd go back first to the idea of well what is Google now right I'm using Google as a stand-in for many many tech companies um what it is is it has become the new public square Um, it has become the new place where the exchange of ideas um, can happen Um, now even though there may be a public square and which i think is necessary for the functioning of a of any society a small society or large ones um, the company is still making money in a in the public square uh, but it has also significantly uh, been aided by um, tax policies so that they can make money. And they've also been aided with rules written in such a way that they can work internationally. Um, this means that they have received aid by the public authority and they have not lived up to the public trust When you have this kind of circumstance where a company no longer lives up to the public trust, um, back at least in the early 1900s, um, people who thought well about what is, you know, uh, uh, the the general welfare, a la what is written in the U.S. Constitution, realize that large companies like this have to be broken or they have to be properly regulated. Um, And that is not to say that it is infringing upon the rights of the free speech, but it is defending the small C constitution, not the large C like the US, but the small C what composes the people um, or a nation uh, and attempting to to defend um, the the small C constitution of of a country. This is where we're at now. We are no longer able to defend the uh, the small C constitution of, of the United States against such companies that make all this money and work against the public trust. I take a slightly different approach to Aaron, though, because um, I generally think that, that, that the desire for freedom as an end, including that of speech as an end, 
um, might be the thing that got us to where we are today. Um, that is not to say that one should be arbitrary about censorship, but the United States freely had blasphemy laws, for example, that were generally enforced by the states um, and that are not enforceable, it seems, online. Um, there are uh, The reason why you had this was because the First Amendment, the whole of the First Amendment, all of the rights in the First Amendment, there's five of them, um, are actually about the pursuit of truth, the freedom of religion, the freedom of peaceably assemble, and therefore to petition the government to live according to that truth, the freedom for the press, you know, to act without coercion from the state. Um, those things are uh, for the sake of discovering and living to the truth. So freedom of speech has an end or has a has a has a purpose. That's a fairly Catholic way of looking at it. Uh, you can go back to John Paul II's letters to uh, to journalists, for example. Um, so I think that that I would actually take a, a stronger approach and, and start expanding the Catholic imagination about what what is possible. Um, and uh, and and yeah, I think that 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 would be a little bit more, I think, more realistic, more muscular, and, and possibly. Uh, I mean, it's going to require carrying across, no question. But, um, but I would say that that's the, that's probably a, a slightly um, more sober view of what the Google has become. You know, um, it's become the public square, and they're not living up to the public trust. Thank you very much for that, Paul. And I, I absolutely agree with so much that that you and Erin said. And you know what I think? I think of the following. I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not exactly sure what the argument would be or, or how you would most effectively phrase or frame these uh, for those, uh, I hope, uh, law firms or nonprofit law firms or, or whatever the case might be, who might at some point and, and will take on the big tech companies uh, on, in court for their, their infrictions on, on freedom of speech. This is what I think of. I think of... Uh, monopolies or duopolies, which is a market dominated by two companies, or an oligopoly, which is a market dominated for, by only a handful of companies, such as the power companies or the utility, utility companies. Think of, think of this. Just about every major city or even small cities, they're dominated by one or two or just a few, just a few utility companies for every utility, for water, electric, even uh, cable and gas, Right. Why? Because not everybody, we can't have that many people uh, breaking <laughs> through the, the infrastructure, the cities, to, to build these, these networks. So because that's the case, these monopolies or duopolies or even oligopolies have specific duties which really precede or supersede uh, their, uh, their rights as owners of the of the of the companies so think of think for example of Washington DC okay and we know the sort of organizations institutions and leaders and professionals that habitate that inhabit uh, Washington DC does the uh, local uh, electric company power company uh, that I'm going to assume for the sake of this example that does not espouse spouse Christian values does that company have the right to unplug the power 
for those organizations, let's say Catholic organizations or faith-based organizations that they disagree with? Do they have the right to take away the electricity of Catholic nonprofits or the church in Washington, D.C.? Do they have the right to do that? Of course not. I don't think that would be valid in any courtroom. I don't see how the big tech, tech companies are different than because they, in all for all uh, practical purposes, are monopolies or duopolies or oligopolies, even in cases such as Facebook, because I, I think there are so many different social media uh, offerings out there that you could hardly say that Facebook is a monopoly because there are so many others like it. However, because of their market share, in practice, they are a monopoly or a duopoly, whatever the case might be, because they almost own the market. So uh, why don't the rules apply to them? Uh, in any instance, <laughs> I think we could talk about this for much longer, but we're, we have run out of time. So I'm going to invite Erin to come back on for our summary, and then we will quickly close. Awesome. Sounds good. Yeah, I feel like we could talk about this for couple more hours. <laughs> um, but this was such a great discussion. And thank you again to everyone who's been here for, um, for the whole time. And thank you, Paul, for coming on stage and sharing your thoughts. Um, I'm just going to summarize what we talked about today so that we can each take something away from this and um, remember it as we go about our day and our week. So um, again, so we were talking about, you know, why, what is, why do we need Catholic leadership for civil society uh, so badly, and w what is the urgency? Um, and we we shared, <laughs> hopefully successfully, um, all of that today. So we started out by talking about um, some examples of of headlines, so to speak, of what's happening in our our country and our world today, uh, just to kind of lay the foundation for why um, why this is so important and why we're even talking about it. And it's very clear that this Catholic leadership is so necessary and needed. Just, just looking around for two minutes at what's happening, um, day to day right now. So, um, we started out by talking about that. And so some examples, um, well, one thing we discussed first and foremost is, um, having an understanding of, of who we are as leaders, you know, what is our temperament? What are our strengths? How are we being called to serve God and serve this society um, in, in a way that is in alignment with our Catholic Church's teachings? Um, you know, we, we discussed how there are, you know, certain people who say they're Catholic. Um, <laughs> for example, Catholic politicians and things, people who are in the spotlight, essentially, um, but are just outwardly and publicly going against so many things about our Catholic church and what it teaches. For example, this Texas pro-life law, um, there has been just this very large and, uh, uh, very immediate, um, outcry from people who disagree that it should have been passed. Um, and there is, um, a lot of legal things happening, um, in the midst of that right now. So, um, that's just one example of this. Um, Paul, you mentioned um, this abuse of the common good, which I really like that phrase and that term, actually. I've never heard it put that way. Um, and you sent an article to our Telegram group, which I'm going to say right now, everyone, please go and read it. I was skimming it while we were talking today, and it's 
really, really good because it clearly touches on a lot of the points that not only we discussed today, that but are really important for us as Catholic leaders to understand. So um, highly recommend you go to our Telegram group and read that. So thank you, Paul, for sharing that. Um, we talked about um, this uh, Pope Francis came up a lot in our discussion today and some about some of his comments on pro-choice politicians presenting themselves for Holy Communion, what that looks like in our, our church, his personal experience with that. Um, so that's something that we all need to be aware of, too, as Catholic leaders. How are we um, understanding, you know, what's what's really happening with um, our church and the Eucharist and, and, you know, certain people presenting themselves when Really, they shouldn't be. Um, Paul talked about coercion, but not in the sense that our society thinks of it today in this like very negative way. Um, but if we use this word, you know, correctly or it's understood rightly, um, the more that we can have conversations um, using talking about coercion on our terms. So that was another great point that he brought up. Um, for example, uh, one of these. Um, a couple of these words that are have such a negative connotation, but are actually, when they're correctly used, they're it's a good thing. For example, Christopher said, if if his daughter wanted wanted to date a drug dealer, it it's okay to discriminate and not tolerate that sin. So these words, discrimination and and tolerance, are kind of being thrown around, and lots of negative negativity surrounds those two things but when they're used correctly as Christopher used them um, it is it is good and and rightfully so um, Christopher you mentioned this phrase dictatorship of lies in our society and um, I feel like that's kind of something that we were talking a lot about today in the sense of these ideologies and these things that are that people are trying to indoctrinate into our children, into our schools, into certain communities and organizations um, that is, is not just and, and not right. And a lot of people are, are feeding into or just going with um, these lies. So that's something that we as Catholics especially need to be aware of today. And then we concluded our conversation by talking about um, big tech companies and their uh, power or their role, uh, so to speak, that they have in society, especially when it comes to the truth um, and trying to uh, favor a certain narrative over another. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of us as Catholics, that's not the narrative that they're going for. <laughs> um, so we talked a lot about Google, especially how it's, um, Paul said, it's almost become the new public square, which I would 100% agree with. Um, and he also brought up a point that um, they're receiving this aid from public authority, but they're not living up to public trust. And of course, we had a whole long discussion about that, but those were just a couple of points that I was able to pull out. So another great discussion, and hopefully it very clearly shows the need for Catholic leadership in civil society. And um, we just thank you all for being here and uh, participating today. Thank you so much for that, Erin. And we're going to wrap it up, but I just want to say that the reason we we promote the idea of lay Catholic professionals intentionally seeking to become influential leaders in society, becoming Catholic leaders for civil society, is because we see all of these needs and because it is our calling. It is our calling by the church. The church 
through the Second Vatican Council, and in so many ways since its founding, Christ has called, Christ has, uh, has called each one of us to leadership. And we invite you to consider this and to explore the concrete way in which our group, Tepeyac Leadership Inc., and through our program, Tepeyac Leadership Initiative, forms leaders, Catholic leaders for civil society. I invite you to go into my bio, check out Erin's bio, join our Telegram group, check out our tliprogram.org website. Uh, for the remaining of the month, we are going to continue to be talking about this because uh, very soon we're going to be taking applications for our program, TLI, Tepeyac Leadership Initiative, and you can learn all about it at tliprogram.org, and we'll talk more about it next week. Right now, I have to say bye, so please follow Erin and I. I also invite you to keep the conversation going on our Telegram group where you can find the image of the week every week. Also, don't forget to join the Catholic Professionals Club here on Clubhouse. Join us live on Clubhouse Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific. If you like what you heard here today, listen to it again or share it through our weekly podcast. You can find it in all platforms. Just look for Catholic Leadership for Civil Society. Remember, this is a personal invitation to each one of you to step into the leadership role that God has for us, for you, in civil society. Why? Because if not now, when, and if it's, if it's not us, Cool. Have a wonderful week. God bless. Thank you, everyone. God bless.